Amen. How are we doing, Salt Company? Hey, I'm not mad. I'm just a little disappointed you cheered more for root beer floats than taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we'll work on that. All right, we'll get there. Um, thanks for being here tonight. We're digging back into our sermon series here, A Life Worth Living. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever given by Jesus himself. And we've called it A Life Worth Living because really... As Jesus just unpacks, this is how you live a life that is pleasing to and dedicated to God. It's like, that's life and life to the fullest. So we've been looking at Jesus' teaching and saying, how can we shape our life around Jesus' teaching? And before we dig in, I want to ask you guys a quick question. Feedback is wanted. So if you're not used to like talking in church, that's got to change. All right? So I love it. All right. What comes to mind when you hear the words presidential election? <laughs> Division? Yeah. Signs in the yard? Okay, somebody said Donald Trump, and I'm like, okay, what emotion rises to the surface when you hear Donald Trump? For some people, it's like, I want to cheer, and some people are like, I want to riot, right? And uh, let's be real. Presidential election season is ugly. It's ugly. Uh, it's marked by competition. And November 5th of next year is the presidential election, which means before that comes all the ugliness. We're already starting to see some of it on TV, like Republicans tearing down other Republicans, Democrats tearing down other Democrats. And it's not just about policy. It's not just about policy. Like, obviously there's political differences, how we should solve our nation's issues, but it always goes deeper than that. They always play dirty, right? They, un they uncover somebody's past and they try to run them through, like, the mud. They are out to fight and degrade and do whatever it takes to win. And there's something strange about politics, you know, this presidential election season where we can look at all the presidential ads and campaigns and we can acknowledge, like, this is ugly, but at the same time, we find ourselves, like, involved in it. It's like, I know it's wrong, but at the same time, it feels so right. <laughs> because I can get involved and I can pick a side and I can fight with people and I can maybe win. And in the name of passion and caring for our country we're willing to put up with ugly behavior to win, to be right, you know, to, to maybe win an argument. And it's not just a politics thing. We do this in almost every area of life. And faith, in most cases, is not any different. <laughs> when people think differently than us or act differently than us, when people come against us for what we stand for, we're quick to argue, maybe even to slander, to try and tear them down. We go into fight mode to protect ourselves. And it's not even just about being right. It's about them being wrong. We want to win. And the question is, is this how Christians should act? Like, we should somewhat expect this of presidential election candidates, right? Like, they're politicians, they're going to do whatever it takes to climb to the top, but should Christians act like this? 
in one sense, we, we as Christians should care about, you know, policy type issues. We should care about right and wrong, justice and injustice. There's a couple of verses we'll have on the screen for you. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Isaiah 1, 17 says, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So on one hand, when we start thinking in this like presidential sphere, I'm talking like large scale, we ought to care about injustice in our world. We should care about right and wrong, you know, oppression and wickedness. Jesus models this in Matthew 21 when he shows up to the temple and there's money changers. And what they've done is they've turned this temple of worship into a place of trade. They've actually began to oppress poor people from the sacrificial system, making worship nearly impossible for the poor. And Jesus goes in and he flips the tables. He's ticked about that, right? So you should say, yeah, I care about injustice. I care about being right when it comes to policy. But what about when justice is not just done around you, but done to you? Does that change your answer? What do you think our response should be when injustice is not just a large-scale oppression, but an attack against you personally? How do we win there? That's where we're going to go tonight. So we're going to be in Matthew 5. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 38. Verses will be on the screen. would love for you guys to follow along with me. Word of God says... In Matthew 5, starting in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So we've been talking these last couple of weeks about Jesus here is addressing misunderstandings of the Old Testament law. And in verse 38, what he's actually alluding to is this Old Testament law of retaliation. It was designed to be enacted by civil governments and was actually meant to limit how justice was enacted. It was actually meant to limit inappropriate punishment to make sure that the punishment fit the crime. But what people have done is they've now twisted this law that was to be enacted by civil government and they've started to say, no, now I'm going to take it into my own hands. And this is not just a law that's limiting justice, it is obligating me to seek justice. It's obligating me to take revenge in my personal life. You've never felt this way, though, have you? Never, ever? Right? A teammate or a classmate mocks you or insults you, and you have no desire to do it back. Because we're good Christian people, right? <laughs> no. Uh, your roommate eats your food. You have no desire to get them back, do you? Or, like, send that passive-aggressive Venmo request for money, or just, like, dump their food in the garbage. You've never wanted to do that. Your coworker screws you over, they call in sick, and then you're expected to pick up their shift. You have no desire to do that back to them. 
No, you do. And the reason I know you do is because you're human. You're human. You're sinful. There is this inner desire within us that says, I want to get people back. I want to not just, like, get even. I want to even get ahead. We're okay with pushing people down to platform ourselves. And Jesus is here to tell us tonight, we have to set this aside. If you follow Jesus, you have to set aside this desire to seek revenge and to win. And he gives several examples. I want to just unpack these for you because as we just look at them from an American English 2023 standpoint, they can be really confusing. So I want to provide some clarity to you and then talk through how these might actually play out in our context. And so the first example that he talks about is if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. How many of you guys have heard this saying before? So it's fascinating to me, the more I've studied this, this has very little to do with like physical injury. And I don't know that I had ever known that. And I'm over the age of 30 and I work as a pastor, right? But the more you study this text, a right a slap on the right cheek was actually less about physical attack and more about insult. Because we talked about it a couple weeks ago with your right eye and your right hand, these were seen to be like the dominant side of the body. And so in order for somebody to slap you on the right cheek with their right hand, what do they have to do? They got to backhand you, right? I thought about calling a volunteer up to see if I could model this, but I saved, I saved Silas on that. I was going to bring him up. Um, it's this backhanded slap to the cheek, and it was super insulting. And what Jesus here is not saying is just don't worry about self-defense, put up with abuse. That's not what he's saying. This is actually not telling you to put up with abuse or to not defend yourself. Hear me when I say that. If you are in a position of danger or if you are being abused, you are not called to turn the other cheek to that. You are called to find safety. And the church is meant to be the family of God that looks to protect you and pull you out of that situation. Are we clear on that? Are we good there? Okay. But in the instance that you are insulted, here's what you are supposed to do. Take it. You're supposed to take it. Right. I was talking with a dude uh, earlier this week who was talking about how he was talking amongst friends on this idea of marriage and hooking up and all of this stuff. And he took a stance to say, you know, I actually don't think we should hook up with people. I think we should be faithful and keep ourselves until marriage. And they laughed. And they laughed, you know. And, and there's something within us that wants to, like, fire back and call them the fool and show them how stupid they are for thinking that they're right when they're clearly wrong. But it's not a matter of arguing with fools, but actually being willing to, like, speak the truth. And if people insult you, to not feel like you have to defend yourself. To take it on the chin, Right? And here's this next example. He talks about if someone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak. Now, we don't wear tunics and cloaks anymore. We wear underwear and 
other good stuff like that because it's 2023. But in their day and age, the tunic was kind of the undergarment and their cloak was their outer coat. And actually, in Old Testament law, you had an inalienable right to your cloak. People could actually sue for your tunic, your undergarment. I don't know why anybody would want that other than to just humiliate you. Uh, but you were entitled to your cloak. It was how you like, protected yourself from nakedness. And a lot of times people would use their tunic or their cloak as their blanket at night. And what Jesus here is saying is if people are looking to take away your rights, like you actually have freedom to not fight them to not fight back, but actually to be willing to sacrifice rights in the name of diffusing a situation. And so this is, this is a little bit harder to unpack, um, but a couple examples I thought of. Imagine you have a boss who knows what you stand for, and you are trying to take time off to come to Salt Company or to go to church or to go to Fall Retreat or whatever, and they do not want you to go. And so they are denying your time off to have you come into work. In many ways, they're violating your right to an appropriate time off policy as laid out in an employee handbook and this right to express your religion. They're denying it, but here what Jesus might actually ask you to do is don't fight them. Like, don't no-show and be arrogant and rub it in their face and start this fight. What would it look like for you to show up to work that day and work really hard and do it with a smile on your face? What might that look like? Rather than hanging your head or not showing up. Now, the second example I've thought of, unfortunately, is just true uh, for a lot of people in this room. And I'm sorry if this is the case, but there's parents of college students who will almost hold this like, hey, I raised you and I paid for your college over your head to like try and take away a right of yours. So imagine, you know, your parents said, hey, I raised you. I'm the one paying for your college. You need to come home for grandma's birthday. And you're like, but I'm at college. I want to, you know, hang out with my friends, go deeper with my connection group, whatever that is. And, and they're almost saying, well, if you don't, here's what I can do. You can start paying for your own college, right? And it seems like semi-manipulative, but to actually look to say, hey, I'm not going to intentionally fight against my parents in the name of, like, showing them my rights what can I do to give up a selfish convenience in the name of, like, honoring my parents? Now, there's, some, there's more to be said there. That's a, a tough illustration. There's more to be said in the manipulation side of things. But what does it look like to say, hey, I'm going to choose to lose the battle and give up my rights for the sake of honoring you and hopefully showing you the love and compassion of Jesus? All right, third example. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This was very familiar to the original audience. Roman civilians could actually be asked by the government to carry the luggage of military personnel, but the law limited them to only carry it one mile. 
And here Jesus is saying, hey, if you're asked to do something, even if it is an obligation, how do you do that and do it in a way that like surpasses understanding? This might look like your roommate asking you to take the garbage out. And you should. Anybody want to give an amen to that? Yeah, you got, room, you got roommates that won't take the garbage out. But if, you're, if you are that person, hey, a bunch of people just amen to you. If, if you are that person and your roommate is saying, will you take the garbage out, you shouldn't roll your eyes and say, well, I do the dishes and I vacuum and I do... You should take the garbage out and you should come back in and you should do the dishes and help with laundry and carry your load and you should do it with a smile on your face. Or maybe you're a freshman on a sports team and the captains and the coaches are making you do all the grunt work and you almost want to say like, I'm sick of it, right? I've done the grunt work all season. And it's like, no, what would it look like for you to do the grunt work with a smile on your face and then to finish it and go back and say, hey, what else needs to be done for the team? What might that look like? Different. That's for sure. And then this last one. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I don't think I have to explain this a ton. Um, I mean, people that beg have needs, right? And what Jesus is saying is be willing to meet people's needs. Be generous. Give of your time and of your talents. Be willing to serve people in need. But what I actually felt compelled to share with this group is not all helping helps. Here's what I mean when when I say that. We can actually give to people that are begging in a way that reinforces bad behavior. And that actually is not helping. If we're only meeting an asset and not a need, that is not helping, but actually could be hurting people. Does that make sense? So when you think about someone who might be begging even outside our church building, it's, it's the beauty of living downtown Cedar Rapids, right? There's a lot of people begging, and many of them have very real needs. Hear me when I say that. They have very real needs. They don't have community. They don't have a home, right? They don't have Jesus, let's be real, many of them. But oftentimes, their begging is for money. And then the question is, if we give them money, are we reinforcing what could be negative behavior in their life? Maybe addiction, maybe laziness. Again, I'm painting in broad brushes, but we actually have to get to know what people really need in order to actually give them in a way that is helpful. That requires relationship, not just handouts. But we have to be willing to be that type of people. And so a couple examples I thought of. You have an antagonist classmate who clearly does not agree with what you believe in, but they're struggling with homework. Or they are clearly struggling with test taking. What would it look like for you to say, hey, would you want to study together sometime? I'd love to help however I could. Or maybe you have a grouchy roommate or coworker who just complains all the time. They bicker. They're really annoying to you. And then their car breaks down, and you're like, 
hey, I know a thing or two about cars. Could I fix your car? Or, hey, how about I give you a ride to work until your car is fixed? Like, those are meeting real needs of people who are hard to love. This is a crazy call. Like, for Jesus to say, this is how you deal with injustice. Okay, sacrifice in the name of injustice. But he doesn't just stop there. Read with me what he says next. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In this particular instance, again, addressing a misunderstanding of the law, Jesus taught, you should love your neighbor. But what they have now done is they have taken the opposite of that statement, like love your neighbor, and they've added it onto the end and say, and hate your enemies. That's actually not what the Old Testament law said. It's a misapplication, and Jesus is here to correct this misunderstanding. He says, hey, you don't have an obligation to hate your enemy. You have an obligation to love your enemy. Wow. And we might be sitting here today like, do I have enemies? I got enemies. Got a lot of enemies. No, I'm, hey, that's Drake. Don't listen to that song. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it. Who are, who are our enemies? That was one thing that I struggled with as I looked at this text because I'm like, okay, early New Testament church, people that actually followed Jesus, their enemies were very clear because they weren't there just to like call them names. They were there to like imprison them or kill them. And so even asking that question, like, do we have enemies? If you're quick to be like, yeah, I got enemies, it's like, chill out, dude. Like, you were probably homeschooled in Cedar Rapids. Like, <laughs> you, like you don't have that many enemies, right? <clears throat> but, but, hey, hey, bear with me here, bear with me here. But I think as we actually start to look at how Jesus defines enemies, it's a pretty broad definition. And I was just looking at this today of like, okay, who are our enemies? And if you were to look back at the text, you could actually see three different ways that Jesus identifies your enemies. Okay, the first is in verse 44. Those who persecute you. Those who persecute you. This could be threatening, dishonoring, or offending. People that speak a harsh word, people that are antagonistic to you, people that try to tear you down, people that withhold from you. This could be classmates, teammates, professors, and bosses. And let's be real, as we talk about doing global mission work, there are still Christians today that are literally dying to follow Jesus. There is real persecution happening. And we don't need to feel bad that we're not getting killed for our faith in America, but we must actually acknowledge that people are getting killed on the other side of the world for following Jesus. And then the question is, are we willing to be called a nickname? <laughs> are we willing to be persecuted, like called names, insulted, like graded more harshly in school 
to be outspoken about Jesus? Well, if so, we're going to have enemies that persecute us. Okay, here's the next section, verse 45. Enemies are, he talks about evil and good, just and unjust. And he is unpacking here that your enemies, as followers of Jesus, are the evil and unjust. These are people who resist God, disobey his laws, and ignore him. Now, that doesn't mean you should go to your roommate who doesn't know Jesus and be like, just found out we're enemies tonight. What's up with that? You know, like you don't have to call them your enemy, but the reality is they resist your beliefs and they resist your behaviors and they make your life hard. They really do. I mean, I have three little kids who don't know Jesus and they make my life really hard because they're sinners and they don't hide it, right? These are people that frustrate you and disappoint you. It's the roommate who sleeps around and smokes in your apartment and doesn't care what you think. They're the teammates who talk with profanity and have the locker room talk and you are upset with it. You're just like, man, I wish they would just stop. It's like, yeah, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a sense where they're your enemy, the evil and the unjust. But then you get to this, sorry to pick on the homeschoolers, by the way. You get to this last section here of enemies, and it actually is a really broad definition. In verses 46 and 47, he's talking about, you know, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing? And so he's almost painting this picture of your enemies could just be people that don't love you and don't greet you. That's pretty broad, right? People that don't love you and don't greet you. These are people who are cold or indifferent passerbys. People who simply don't care. And I think the sad thing for me is, when you start to think about this, sometimes it's strangers, but what I think of when I hear cold or indifferent are damaged relationships. Damaged relationships that are not being reconciled. There's this state of distance that's created by a grudge and bitterness. It could even be your own family members who will not talk to you anymore because of an issue that happened weeks, months, or even years ago. And now it's like, whoa, do we love each other? Are we willing to greet each other? If not, there's like enemy territory there. And so if we can identify who our enemies are and kind of broaden the perspective, now it's like, okay, what is Jesus asking us to do? Two things, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love and pray for. Now, I hate that I have to do this, but I want to unpack what it actually means to love your enemies. This is grossly misunderstood, and I want to make sure that I honor your time tonight, but Loving somebody does not always mean that you affirm them, okay? There is a big difference between accepting somebody and approving of their behavior. Accepting somebody says, I look at you and I understand that you are created by God and for God, meaning you are an image bearer, you have inherent dignity, value, and worth, you are worth my time. I care for you. I want to show up. I want you to know that you matter. And I'm willing to listen to you 
and understand you and welcome you into my, my home, that is accepting somebody. But this does not mean that you have to approve or affirm their behavior. It actually, loving your enemy might look more like saying, I love you too much. I love you too much to not address this area of your life because I think it's ruining you. And when I think about my dad who passed away in 2016, he was a recovered alcoholic, right? And I, I think of this example of if my dad, who I loved so dearly, would have said to me as a young man in college, Jordan, will you go buy me a 30-pack? I'd say, absolutely not. Because if you buy a 30-pack, you're going to drive yourself back into obliteration. I love you too much to support this terrible decision that you want to make. That is loving. And we've missed that recently in the cultural name of love being be nice to people and don't confront different areas of their life. Now, there is a unloving way to communicate that, but there is also a loving way to communicate that. And I think what we need to hear more of is if you are afraid to talk to somebody about a destructive area of their life, you're not loving them, you're loving yourself. You care more about saving the relationship and your personal comfort than you do pointing out a blind spot in their life that's destroying them. That is not loving them, but is loving you. And so you have to be willing to say, yes, I see you, I care for you, you're worth my time, and I really believe that God has a greater plan for your life. Would you be willing to hear me out and to have that conversation with them? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To think about praying for the people who we would call our opponents, people who are against us, people who are enemies, and say, God, would you remind me that they are worth loving? God, would you soften their heart? Would you show them the good news of the gospel? If you know actual things about their life, would you pray for their good? Father, help them exceed on this test. Succeed on this test. Help them to get this job that they've been desperately wanting. Like, give them good. And if you think about it, Praying is one of the most powerful things we get to do in any given day. Like we get to just stop what we're doing and talk to our creator, the one who's sovereign over all and in control of the universe. And if you would stop and pray for people who persecute you, do you think you'd start to love them a little bit more? You would. Like, you're spending your time and your effort and your energy in prayer going before the God of the universe on their behalf. You almost find yourself starting to root for them the more you pray for them. One author said it this way, the surest way of killing bitterness is to pray for the man we are tempted to hate. I love that. The surest way of killing bitterness is to pray for the man we are tempted to hate. So why do we do this? Well, there's a couple clear reasons I want to fly by. The first is it shows that we're children of God. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
children look like their parents. And so if we want to put the love of Christ on display, we should kind of model his character. (laughs) Which we see in verse 45, he's not super choosy on how he chooses to like make the sun rise or rain to fall. Whether you're evil or good, sun's coming up, rain's falling. Whether you're just or unjust, there are blessings to give out to all people. And so we don't have to be choosy on who we love. And this shows that we have the character of God, but also it shows that we're different than the world around us. That's some of what Jesus is getting at in verses 46 and 47 is, man, it's normal. It's a normal human response to repay evil for evil and to repay good for good. Like if you don't know Jesus, that makes sense to you. But if you don't know Jesus, and I'm saying, here's what you should do. You should repay evil with good. You're like, that makes no sense to me. Because that's not a normal human response. That is a divine response. That shows the very heart of God. To repay evil with good. And so, you get all of these hard commands, and then you get to verse 48 which you think it wouldn't get any harder, Jesus says this, to cap it off, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Any of you guys want to throw the towel in? (laughs) I do, right? Like, man, sacrifice in the name of injustice. Love your enemies. Pray for people that persecute you. Now be perfect? What? Seems impossible, Right? What's Jesus getting at here? Is this like, hey, I want to show you how you can't measure up? Maybe. I mean, there is a sense where as we look to honor God and submit to the words of Scripture, what we're doing is we're being conformed into this perfect God-like character, right? Like we get to be molded into the image of Jesus as we submit to the Scriptures and try to live that way. But... You can't just be perfect, and you can't try harder to be perfect. We can't just say, I want to aim at perfection without acknowledging, looking at this verse, that there is only one who is perfect, God himself. And that is both terrifying and encouraging. To look at verse 48, the end of this section, and say, be perfect as I'm perfect, I want to throw in the towel, because I'm like, God, there is no way I've already screwed this up. I feel like I'm going to screw it up tomorrow. I give up. I've fallen short of the glory of God, and that has consequences. That should terrify us, but I say encouraging because we don't have to measure up. It's actually not about us being perfect, but looking at the one who was perfect, namely Jesus Christ recognizing that Jesus perfectly lived this out. And I want to read a few passages for you to to just show you how Jesus perfectly lived this passage out. The first, Isaiah 53. This is prophecy hundreds, if not a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In the face of injustice, he seeked to not have revenge. He stayed silent. 
Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus died for you while you were an enemy. How great is that love? He didn't wait for you to clean your act up and become a friend. No, he looked at you as an enemy and gave his life for you. And then the question is, what was Jesus doing in that process of dying? I'm so glad you asked. Luke 23. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus was praying for you as your sin hung him on the cross. Whoa! This is crazy, Salt Company, to look at this passage and say, okay, When personal injustice is done against me, I don't have to seek revenge because Jesus didn't seek revenge. Oh, it's not just go love your enemies. It's recognize that you were an enemy of God and that's exactly where Jesus loved you. It's not just muster up the strength to go pray for people that are hard to love. It's no, look at the fact that Jesus prayed for you while your sin hung him to a cross. We're actually called to trust in Jesus before we try. We can rest in Jesus' perfection before we actually respond to obeying these commands. But, hear me, the, the good news of the gospel both encourages us and challenges us. It both provides us the comfort we need when we fall short and the challenge we need to move forward. And Jesus here in this passage is not just here to show you that you've fallen short, though it does clearly do that for everybody in this room. He is here to call you to action to call you to action. How do you overcome personal injustice? When people do wrong to you, when people tear you down, chew you up and spit you out, how do you win? How do you get even? Or do you? No. This is how you overcome personal injustice. Overcome personal injustice by imitating the love of Jesus. Imitating the love of Jesus. But it's going to require you to do two things. And I promise you, I'm almost done. I'm sorry I'm going long. The first is this, you have to surrender. You have to surrender. And what I mean by that is you have to surrender to the finished work of Jesus before you ever get the opportunity to imitate the love of Jesus. You cannot give what you do not possess. You have to surrender to the finished work of Jesus and you have to surrender your desire for control. You have to surrender your desire to seek revenge to get rid of bitterness and to trust that we serve a God who is just. He knows people better than you. He cares more about the situation than you. And he is more just than you are. So to be willing to just let go of this injustice and trust that God himself will take care of it. And after you surrender, here's what you have to do. You have to seek. You have to seek. Seek the Lord. First and foremost, for yourself. Seek the Lord for your confidence and your security. 
I've heard it said before that we are only offended to the degree that we're insecure. So if you find yourself offended by something, the question is, why are you so insecure about it? Go to the Lord. Find your security in him. And yes, seek the Lord on behalf of your enemy. Pray for them. Fervently, day after day, call to mind these people that are hard to love and seek the Lord on their behalf and seek to serve. Actually look for opportunities to live this out. They're everywhere if you're willing to look for them. Seek to serve people that are hard to love. And here's what would happen if we would live this out. Romans 12 actually gives a sweet picture. Romans 12, starting in verse 19, says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you might think, what the heck are burning coals? I mean, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible is Isaiah 6. You know, a prophet of God who is seen to be a man with unclean lips, and a seraphim comes and touches his lips with burning coals. And here's what the burning coals symbolized. Yes, on one hand, judgment. You're a sinner, but also cleansing and purification. To set Isaiah aside as a messenger of the Lord, right? And to say, now you're clean. Now go to the nations, right? And so this idea of overcoming evil with good, here's what we will get to see, Lord willing, as we live this out. Enemies of the cross of Christ repent and believe. Enemies becoming family. And one of the most beautiful stories I've heard of this, you you guys should look it up later, is a gal by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield. She was a political activist, a professor of queer studies at Syracuse University in a committed lesbian relationship. She was seeking to write a book Why do Christians hate gay people? That was her perception. And she was very antagonistic to the Christian faith. Well, she happened to meet her neighbor. Her neighbor happened to be a pastor. (laughs) His name is Ken, Ken Smith. Ken and his wife, Floyd, befriend Rosaria. They invite her into their house. They read the Bible seven times through. They share over 500 meals together. And you know what happens? Rosaria becomes a Christian. She leaves her lesbian lifestyle. She is now today married to a Presbyterian pastor with four kids and is writing Christian theology books. Whoa! But think about it. Seven times through the Bible, 500 meals? Didn't happen overnight, did it? And it took Ken and his wife, Floyd, actually loving Rosaria. She wasn't a project for them. She was a person, a person with inherent dignity, value, and worth. And they said, we're going to love you even if we disagree. And I'll accept you even if I don't approve of your lifestyle, but I just want to show you the love of Jesus. And look what it did. And how many more people may come to know the love of Christ through Rosaria's work. It's incredible. So I want to pray for us to that end. All right, pray with me. Father, uh, we, we just acknowledge uh, that deep within us, we have no ability to love our enemies and to pray for those who are uh, acting against us, those who are putting injustice down our throats, Lord. We have no ability 
to love them, to extend them mercy and grace, but because we are recipients of mercy and grace. Jesus, because you loved us while we were yet enemies, now by the power of your spirit, you are asking us to imitate you to a world around us that desperately needs you. And as we do so, Lord, uh, would you heap burning coals on people's heads, lead people to repentance and faith, help them see, Jesus, that you are better than anything this world has to offer. And would you get the glory. We love you, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen.